Tonight we begin with 2 Samuel 19, verse 40, and we will continue through the end of chapter 21. Let's bow together in prayer for a moment. Father, our journey approaches its end in the narrative story of David. And we pray that as you bring us to the climax of this wonderful account, that you will also enable us to bless your name as David himself does. Grant us the same deliverance and salvation that you gave to him out of your wonderful grace, mercy, and loving kindness. For we are dependent upon your Son, even as he was, far off by faith, grasping the eschatological David, even as he lived. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. No sooner is Absalom's rebellion crushed and Absalom executed with the sanction of Joab, then Shiva raises another revolt destined to cost him his head at the sanction of Joab. And if Joab is demoted on account of Absalom and Amasa promoted, then Amasa will be demoted by murder, and the murderous Joab will promote himself to his former role of commanding general. If we have become accustomed to our narrator's roller coaster effect of upward and downward narrative vectors, we become positively giddy with the dizzying reversals in 2 Samuel chapters 19 and 20. Absalom down, David up. Joab down, Amasa up. David down, Shiva up. Amasa down, Joab up. Keep your eye on the bouncing narrative ball. But we must not imagine that our inspired narrator is simply bent on bobbing our attention up and down, down and up. No, there is a more profound aspect to his literary madness. Notice the narrative ripples which course through chapter 20. The tensions between Israel in the north and Judah in the south retrospective ripple as well as ominous prospective ripple effect. The tension between Amasa and Joab, again, retrospective and prospective. The role of Abishai, one of the sons of Zeruiah. The wise woman of Abel Beth Meachah a ripple reflection of the wise woman of Tekoa in chapter 14. Even the list of kingdom administrators in chapter 20, verses 23 to 26, finds a rippling echo in chapter 8, verses 15 to 18. 
Second Samuel 20 is but one more narrative instance of interconnected and interrelated literary ripples. Chapter 19, verses 40 to 43, provide the raison d'etre of chapter 20. The mention of Gilgal in verse 40 echoes the hopes of chapter 9, verse 15, chapter 19, verse 15. Gilgal and a rehearsal of new beginnings for Israel under David as for Israel once upon a time under Joshua. But this gathering of the tribes of Israel at Gilgal will portend division, schism, and rebellion. Sadly, the arrival at Gilgal augurs old tensions, not new beginnings. Whatever newness may be latent in the return of the king, old sins rise anew to the surface, old sins patent at Gilgal. The clash of words at Gilgal will be followed by a clash of swords in the Cisjordan. Is David passive in this scene? Is David, who does not speak in this scene, is passive, speechless David here the same old, passive, speechless David who is informed of the rape of Tamar, who witnesses the prostration of his murderous son Absalom but says nothing, who passes up his place at the gate while Absalom subverts his kingdom. A new David come to Gilgal. It appears that more of the old David comes to Gilgal to once again deja vu, to once again witness the clash between Israel and Judah, as in the days of Ishbosheth. Oh, David, David, what unnerves you? What unmans you? What cripples you? What reduces you to a passive pawn? Does that curse uttered by Nathan find you passively cooperating so that the sword does not depart from your house? Oh, David, David, you confessed your sin to the Lord and to his prophet. You acknowledged your shame and were reconciled. David, confess again. Confess that you have abetted this tension between the north and the south. David, acknowledge that as king over both Israel and Judah, you will heal their wounds with conciliatory speech. Speak, David. Act, David. Don't stand passively by 
idly by, act to heal the rift, to ease the tensions. Speak to Judah and Israel as the bringer of peace and rest. Tell them to lay down their weapons, to beat their swords into plowshares, and to learn war no more. David, play the mediator of reconciliation between Judah and Israel and turn this bitterness into rejoicing, the joy of a reunited nation, a pacified one people of God, a kingdom in which there is neither Judahite nor Israelite, a kingdom in which there are only servants of the king on Mount Zion. But David, David does not speak. David, David does not intervene. David absents himself from the rude and arrogant treatment of his own tribal kinsmen and passively endorses the trash talk, the trash talk of verse 42, which even our narrator labels harsh in verse 43. The wedge which is being driven between Israel and Judah will widen to a full-blown schism while David does nothing, says nothing. You will notice the interrogatives of the men of Israel sandwiching the interrogatives of the men of Judah. Verses 41 and 43 around verses, verse 42. But this sandwich does not enfold Israel and Judah. This sandwich testifies to the stark contempt with which the men of Judah regard the men of Israel. Claiming tribal solidarity, the men of Judah retort to their brothers. Note that familial term in verse 41. They retort in smart mouth style. What do you have to be angry about? The king is our relative, not yours. And tribalism, ever arrogant and divisive tribalism. Tribalism ups the ante as it ups the blood pressure. We are ten tribes to your two. And on top of that, we were first, not you. Insults and contempt fuel tribalism and one-upsmanship and war. And the new thing that breaks out there, notice verse 1 in chapter 20. The new thing that breaks out there at Gilgal. The new thing that dawns in the ongoing story of David is the newest upstart. 
renegade, opportunist, demagogue, hypocrite. Shiva raises his cry of rebellion as his counterpart Absalom raised his. Uniformly denominated Shiva, the son of Bikrai, throughout this narrative. He is characterized by our narrator as a son of Belial, a worthless fellow, a scoundrel, a renegade, a troublemaker, a reckless person. He is certainly a demagogue as he repudiates the legacy of the previous ruler of the nation, degrading the government of David with contempt and insult, crying for a new beginning, a new beginning of separation, division, and polarization, pitting one body politic against the other, Shiva raises the call for all to rally round him, for his party to run roughshod over all who favor the former administration and to separate that benighted segment of the population with insults with claims of moral and political superiority, with the arrogance of self-assertion, self-adulation, self-government, not David but me, not that former government but mine, follow me, not that contemptible troublemaker David. The demagogic Self is ever about self. Shiva, like his narrative ripple alter ego Absalom, is all about himself. It's all about me and my agenda. Notice the Nabal-like contempt which drips from his rhetoric. Nabal, in 1 Samuel 25.10, had sneered, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Contemptible interrogatives. Who is he? To Nabal, he is a no-name, a no-name son of an inferior father. Now, notice how Shiva reprises the contempt. More narrative ripples. No portion in David, what is A, and what is more than A, B, no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Expanded parallel in which he refuses to use the titles of the king, the office of the king, the legacy of the king. He contemptuously refuses any legacy to the Lord's anointed, to his own rightful king and sovereign. Rather, he trumpets, follow me, 
Every man leave this man, this no-name son of an inferior sheep herder. Go home, abandon him and rally to me, to my banner, my standard, my rebel cry, my party. Gather round me and together we will remake the government, we will remake the nation We will remake the world. So, the plank of the demagogue. But this call to liberty from David is a call to bondage under Shiva. Fickle Israel but newly ransomed from bondage to Absalom, willfully sells herself to yet another rebel demagogue. Shiva raises his rallying cry for change, and all Israel is bewitched, betraying the king who has expanded their frontiers, brought peace from their enemies, especially enemies abroad, and has brought the blessings of the Lord God of the Ark of the Covenant to Zion and Jerusalem. David's own fickleness notwithstanding, and that characterization in David is ironic, he has been the instrument of national stability, prosperity, and peace, especially in the face of Philistine terrorism. Shiva would collapse and destroy all of that with one shrill blast of his noisy, bombastic trumpet and his symmetrical, mellifluous rhetoric. One further note on the symmetrical call to arms of Shiva there in verse 1. It will re-echo. It will re-echo once more in the history of schism between Israel and Judah. When Rehoboam, son of Solomon, son of David refuses to conciliate the tensions within his nation by withdrawing his draconian measures of higher taxes, more burdensome government employment programs. In short, when Rehoboam refuses to listen to the pleas of the people and declares that he knew what was best for them, My little finger is thicker than the previous administration's loins, and I will add to your yoke and place you under the discipline of my advanced elite bureaucracy, whether you want it or not. When Rehoboam turns a deaf ear to the cries of his nation, The ten northern tribes of Israel re-echo the rallying cry of Shiva in 1 Kings 12, 16, and they shout, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, 
narrative ripples, portentous narrative ripples. And that division, that split between Israel and Judah in 931 B.C., that schism will be permanent all the way to the destruction of the northern Israel by Assyria in 722-21 B.C. and the destruction of southern Judah by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. There are ominous ripples in Shiva's clarion call. Now, we notice a structural inclusio around this dramatic narrative in verses 1 and 22 of chapter 20. You will observe the parallel sequence in verse 1. Shiva, son of Bikrai, followed by the word trumpet and the word tent. In verse 22, you will once again observe the very same sequence, Shiva, son of Bikrai, and the word trumpet, followed by the word tent. There is a definite inclusio bracket around this incident, which develops in chapter 20. And at the crisscross of these two uh, narrative brackets, is David at Gilgal understood in verse 1 and the king in Jerusalem in verse 22. The last word of verse 22 is the king. The king. Mirror symmetry is demonstrative of the reversal of Shiva's rebellion. The fact that the last word in verse 22 in the Hebrew text is king indicates the climax and closure of the reversal. David is king of all Israel and Judah once more in Jerusalem. Gilgal, verse 1, there, Gilgal, in spite of the rebellious uprising, has become, after all, a launching place for a new beginning for King David, his nation, and his capital. The king has returned to Jerusalem, and the renewed stability of his political administration is indicated by the list of his administrators in verses 23 through 26. That list testifies to the narrative ripple return of David's royal Pacific administration. Closure to the troubled Absalom, Shiva eras, is the duplication of of the list of administrators of David's kingdom, a duplicate list similar to the list in chapter 8, verses 15 to 18. 
The list in chapter 8 brings closure to the expansion of the nation of Israel, Judah, under David's military and political leadership. Both lists, chapter 8 and here in chapter 20, both lists are a witness to the upward spiral, the upward spiral of David's career. Unification in chapter 8, reunification in chapter 20. Narrative ripple return at the closure of his career back to one of the high points of his career. Turning now to verse 3. The challenge before us is the apparently harsh treatment of the concubines whom David abandoned when he abandoned Jerusalem, noted in 2 Samuel 15, verse 16. He places them under guard, a virtual house arrest, if you will. And though he provides food and substance for them, he banishes them from their function by reducing them to living widows until they died. Now, why? Why does David do this? The narrative ripple helps us here. These women had been openly and publicly raped by Absalom, 2 Samuel 16, verse 22. The son had engaged in sexual congress with his father's erstwhile wives, as concubines practically were. Hence, for the father to act now as if these women had not been used incestuously by his son would be to privately deny what had been publicly exhibited. All Israel would know. All Israel would know what shame had been visited upon these women. David then would not or could not pretend that they had not been tainted with incestuous relations. A son has his father's wives. Such a thing should not be heard of. You hear narrative ripples there? Hmm. Therefore, in order to preserve the integrity of his public morality, David shut them up while caring for them until the day of their death. Keep in mind that the punishment for incest under the law of God through Moses was death. Leviticus 20, verse 11 Refer to Deuteronomy 27, verse 20 as well. David does not administer the death penalty, implicitly recognizing the injustice of their rape. Nevertheless, he cannot revisit their beds lest he appear to endorse the incestuous act of his son Absalom. 
There is reciprocal and mutual banishment here. Reciprocal and mutual banishment because of the defilement of Absalom. The concubines banished from David, David banished from the concubines. And notice, if you will, the other tragic reversal. In 2 Samuel 15, 16, David leaves the concubines to watch over the house. Now, 2 Samuel 20, verse 3, the concubines are shut up in a house under watch. And you don't think this narrator is brilliant? Ah, he is an inspired change. Amasa, verse 4, is instructed to call out the men of Judah. He obeys, verse 5, by calling out the men of Judah. It is a hook sequence pattern. David gives him three days. You have 72 hours to roust out an army just back from a weary and bloody campaign against Absalom. Please don't forget that fact in the background of this command. And as one might expect, at least one who is a reasonable man might expect, Amasa takes more than three days or 72 hours to rouse the troops. Troops who hadn't seen their wives and children for who knows how many months. David, who has been impatient and unreasonable with the men of Israel, in chapter 19 above, verses 41 to 43, is impatient and unreasonable with his commanding general. How do we ever calculate David's perpetual inconsistencies? So patient and indulgent of Absalom. Yes, patient overindulgence of Absalom. Now, impatiently and without indulgence gives Amasa only hours to meet his stringent, unreasonable demands. And when Amasa fails, does he listen to the circumstances like a wise and compassionate commander-in-chief? No. He cashiers Amasa for Abishai, verse 6, and without redress degrades the recently elevated general to the level of vulnerability. Amasa is now a target. Amasa is now a target, and the sons of Zeruiah, who since the cold-blooded murder of Abner have been too hard for David to handle the opportunistic, ah, a crisis is too precious a thing to waste, 
Whoever wasted a crisis when it was right there in front of your face, and certainly Joab and Abishai aren't going to do it. The opportunistic brothers are quick to exploit the opening which David has once again given them. If David demotes Amasa, who is to benefit? Since personal benefit and self-interest is what drives these nephews of the king, David turning to the brother of Joab is as good an endorsement of Joab's brother as you can get. And Amasa, he has been abandoned by David, whom David endorsed over Joab. What goes around comes around, David. Time to get even on core and Amasa, Amasa goes the way of Abner by the Judas kiss of his familiar friend. The hunt is on. The hunt is on. Abishai, who is commanded to pursue Shiva, verse 6, is joined by his brother Joab, ostensibly in pursuit of Shiva, verse 7. The hook pattern returns. But the sons of Zeruiah are not hunting Shiva primarily. The shift from Amasa to Abishai to Joab, verses 4 and 5, verse 6, verse 7, shifts to Amasa and Joab and Abishai, verse 8 and verse 10. The hunter becomes the hunted. David has put out the hit on Amasa by demoting him in the eyes of the sons of Zeruiah and appointing Abishai, which is the same as appointing Joab, general-in-chief. And the narrator makes that crystal clear. Joab is prominent first in verse 7. The hapless Amasa comes to Gabeon, to Gabeon, and our narrator ripples more narrative ripples. Was it not at Gabeon that the men of Abner and the men of Joab faced off in front of the pool, the mirror-like pool of Gabeon? And was it not at that pool that 12 of Abner's men and 12 of Joab's men Mirror reflection seized one another by the head and thrust their swords simultaneously into the side so that they all died at once. Deja vu encore. Amasa is seized by the beard of the head with the right hand while the left hand, ah, oh, sinistra, the sinister hand, drives a sword into his side, and he falls dead at Gibeon. No, Joab was not hunting for Shiva. Not until he first hunted Amasa to death. And David once more becomes the unwitting pawn in Joab's grandiose schemes to make himself Chief soldier, head general, 
macho man with sword and spear, removing every obstacle to his insatiable lust, his bloodlust for power in David's Israel. Joab is the Bible's perfect power broker. This treacherous murderer counterfeits goodwill, as he did with Abner, while seething with homicidal mania. He walks toward his victim with his sword strapped to his left side. And as he strides towards the unsuspecting Amasa, he contrives to spill that sword from its sheath as he simultaneously reaches with his right hand to embrace the beard of his nemesis with a kiss, a kiss of death. A kiss of death as the now unnoticed left hand, grasping the all too convenient snatched up sword, sinisterly drives the blade into the pericardial region of his demoted rival and lays him in the dust in a pool of blood and entrails. This grisly Judas, having successfully murdered yet another competitor, takes up the hunt of David's current nemesis without so much as blinking an eye. Then Joab and Abishai pursued Shiva, verse 10. But the primary object of these devious hunters lies in the middle of the road at Gibeon, wallowing in his blood and halting the advance of every soldier, every soldier who was once under his command. An army balking at pursuit, halted by a gruesome murder scene, must not be allowed to tarry. Quick, snap them out of it. And Joab sandwiches David again in verse 11. Whoever favors Joab is for David. Follow Joab. David squeezed by Joab. David controlled once again by Joab. This Judas controls the protological David. Will the eschatological David also be controlled by Judas the traitor? Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The murderous traitor returns. In the eschatological hour of darkness and the power thereof. But this kissy kissy traitor deals with more than a son of man. The New Testament Judas is betraying the Son of God. And if bloody death follows this kiss of treachery, then this God-man, this 
theanthropic man, this eschatological David, will endure the bloody death, submit to the kiss of treachery, bow his head to the contradiction of sinners, and rise up. Rise up alive from the dead, no stain of blood upon him. No guilt of sin upon him, but rather death, murderous, treacherous death, reversed. Reversed, I say, in glorious, everlasting life. Glorious, everlasting, resurrection life. Death and treachery and bloody murder turned inside out by God the Son, through life and immortality and a body impervious to bloody treachery. Resurrection trumps crucifixion. Justification trumps condemnation. Life trumps death. A son of God trumps the man of sin. David, David will trump Joab at last. Yes, he will. But the chase must go on. Cover up the corpus delecti and move on. Joab's conscience doesn't balk. Innocent blood on his sword doesn't stop him. Only the brief exposure of the bloody deed slows his supporters, cover up the evidence, and move on. After all, the really important objective for the cameras to capture is the objective Joab pursues. One lone corpse dare not interfere with the bigger agenda. Cover it up and move on. What crass, imperious belligerence drips like slime from Joab. But he is accustomed to it. His whole career has been habituated by crass, imperious, egocentric belligerence. And this latest incident is but one more of Joab in character. Ruthless, brutal, manipulative, unstoppable Joab. You can't stop me, even if you're the king of the nation. You can't stop me. The pursuit, the pursuit resumes in verse 13. And the pursuit which closes the Amasa incident 
resumes with the pursuit of Shiva through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Maaka. Verse 14, where the Hebrew word pursue is translated went after in the New American Standard, which is more accurately translated pursue again because we have the hook pattern in 13 and 14 encore. Now, from your map in your handout, which is on the back page of the three sheets, you will notice that Abel Beth Maaka is in the extreme north of Israel. The hook patterns which our narrator uses with the light verter pursue here at verses 13 and 14 provide the transition from Gilgal and Jerusalem in the south to Abel Beth Maaka in the extreme north. Shiva dashes all the way north through the tribes of Israel in his retreat, fleeing to the northern frontier, to the very northern frontier of the kingdom of David. Now you will observe a second hook pattern in verses 14 and 15. The chase that originates in the south ends at Abel Beth Maaka in the north, verse 14. And now the next scene in the Shiva account opens with the siege of Abel Beth Maaka in verse 15. So the hook pattern of 14 and 15 is the location of the refuge of Shiva in Abel Beth Maaka. And Shiva inside the city, Shiva inside Abel Beth Maaka, Shiva is enclosed by the name of the city, even as he is enclosed by the siege of the city. Shiva closed in. We also note that Shiva, who raised the cry for all Israel to join him, has been unable to follow through in his flight through all the tribes of Israel, unable to unite the nation behind his rebel cry. He arrives at Abel Beth Maaka, supported only by his own tribe. Translated Beerites in many versions, but likely a copyist's error for Bichrites. And the reason for this suggestion is that no such group as Beerites is known to have existed. The siege, and Joab is well skilled in siege warfare. Remember Rabbah in 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 and chapter 12 verses 26 to 31. The siege is neatly described in verse 15, a methodology that has been depicted in Assyrian siege warfare, especially at the famous siege of Lachish under Sennacherib, king of Assyria in 701 B.C., a siege pictured on the wall reliefs from Sennacherib's palace, 
excavated in the 19th century and preserved in the famous Lakish Room of the British Museum. You may view these very significant wall reliefs online through various sites, including the British Museum website, but perhaps the best display of these reliefs is found in the slideshow of Odyssey Adventures in Archaeology. Simply click on the Siege of Lakish. Notice the siege details in verse 15. A mound of earth and rock is built up against the wall of the city, the rampart. Then battering rams and other toppling devices are rolled up the ramp in order to batter the walls from the top, to batter the walls from the top, because if you knock them from the top down, it's easier. Hence, you create a breach from the top of the wall and pour in your invading forces. The details here, which are recorded in verse 15, are consistent with what the archaeologist Spade has uncovered of ancient siege warfare, whether it's Assyrian, Babylonian, Roman, Greek, it's the same M.O. And now we meet the wise woman of Abel Beth Maaka, an unnamed wise woman. And the second anonymous wise woman, both we and Joab have encountered in the story of David. Recall the wise woman of Tekoa in chapter 14, another plaintiff, another plaintiff pleading that something or someone be spared. I draw your attention to the twin pillars of her appeal. First, her sex. Second, her role. She uses the mother in Israel image in verse 19 to draw sympathy from Joab for his maidservant in verse 17. I am not faulting her shrewd use of the weaker vessel motif here. It echoes the grieving mother appeal of the wise woman of Tekoa. But notice how she combines the image of vulnerability with her role as Lady Wisdom. She cites an adage, an adage in verse 18, which highlights the esteem of the city of Abel for wise counsel and advice. An esteem which was once upon a time formerly, in your English translation, once upon a time, wisdom which was proverbial, proverbial. And then, having rooted her plea to Joab in the history of the city and its reputation, she folds her plea to Joab into herself. 
she folds her plea into the role that she herself portrays as a peaceable and faithful mother in Israel, verse 19. In other words, in the course of the history of this city, proverbial for wisdom, fidelity, and shalom, a woman emerges as spokesperson who folds herself into that very paradigm. I am the wise one, faithful and desirous of shalom in Israel. But notice she has one trump card she has not yet played. Joab <clears throat> You are willing to listen to wise counsel and advice? Joab, you are willing to take the word of one who is faithful? Joab, you are surely seeking shalom as I am? But Joab, you are about to swallow up the inheritance of the Lord to destroy a mother in Israel. Joab, why? Why do you oppose Yahweh? Why do you oppose the God of Israel? Mm, mm, This woman is wise indeed. More than she may know. She has arrested Joab at the very point of his vulnerability. She has shamed him with a name above even David's name, the name of the Lord Jehovah. Oh, yes, I admit Joab appears unconscionable with respect to the will of God. Three times a murderer does not make him a lover of the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. But the narrator records this story in part to cite the stopping point, the turning point in Joab's murderous siege of the city of Abel. And the plot turns. The plot turns when Lady Wisdom mentions the name of the Lord of Wisdom. Joab, who is not stopped by covenants made by David, Abner, Joab, who is not stopped by commands of David to spare spare his son, Absalom. Joab, who is not stopped by his subordination to David's commanding general, Amasa. Joab is stopped by a woman who wisely places squarely before him the name of the Lord Yahweh. A whole city is spared by a faithful woman who holds up the name of Jehovah, a wise woman indeed. She, a personification of her city. She herself, the inheritance of the Lord. She herself, the maidservant, the handmaid. Of the Lord.
the destruction of the city of Abel would be matricide. Matricide, murder of a mother. To avoid matricide, the homicidal Joab must be satisfied with yet another grisly corpse. He who had raised his head, his head, many heads do not roll. Wisdom's counsel is the counsel of proportionate and equitable justice. He who raised his hand against the king in a threat to the king's life must forfeit his life to pacify the threat of his rebellion to that king. The head of Sheba, that the head of Israel's king may yet be preserved. The head of Sheba is wisely, notice verse 22, the head of Shiva is wisely severed and thrown over the wall, over the battered wall, thrown over the crumbling, battered wall, and Shalom returns to the city. Another trumpet sounds, verse 22. Not the trumpet of rebellion, but the trumpet of surcease and retreat. Israel goes to their tents, not in revolt, but in shalom. And Joab, Joab goes to the king, to King David in Jerusalem. And once again, We must ask, will David do the right thing? Will David do the just thing in executing Joab for the cold-blooded murder of his very own commanding general? Deja vu encore. Did he execute Joab for the murder of Abner? No, he turned that dastardly deed into a state funeral. Well, we have no state funeral for Amasa. Perhaps our narrator has given up on David, given up on David as a righteous king in Jerusalem. Perhaps our narrator knows that with Joab back in Jerusalem at David's side, the status quo ante returns. David is reduced to the position and role he was reduced to by Joab from the time of Abner's death till now. And further, perhaps David realized that he used Joab's ruthless and murderous method himself, used it himself in the ruthless murder of Uriah. Perhaps our narrator caps off these tragic chapters of David's career, chapters 11 to 20 of 2 Samuel. Perhaps he caps off these tragic chapters with the list of David's administration once more, verses 23 to 26, in order to underscore 
the return to normal. The way it was before David was driven out of Jerusalem. The way it was before David, when David was on his throne in Jerusalem, but Joab was in control. The status quo ante. Perhaps our narrator leaves us in chapter 20 with a status quo. David, dominated by Joab. Yet a David whose kingdom is restored, secure, and administered by a list of bureaucrats, at the top of which the first name on the list, you will note, is the name Joab, verse 23. Do you have any questions on Second Samuel 19.40 through the end of chapter 20? Any comments you'd like to make? Okay. So you think that Amasa is really true to David then? Yes. <clears throat> I think the narrative ripples are that Amasa is in the role of Abner, one who, though he was uh, opposed to David, was uh, brought into David's circle and was loyal to him. It is true there's no covenant confirmation of that as there was in the case of Abner. Remember that Abner and David concluded a covenant. Together, But I believe that the uh, ripple effect or the mirror effect is that Amasa at the end of David's career as, is as Abner at the beginning of David's career. And he is a man who had become loyal to him in spite of his previous disloyalty, which makes his murder all the more treacherous. Yes, Pat. It's hard to be exact. Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I think that with the three days that Amasa is given, we're on a short string here. In other words, uh, Absalom has been executed by Joab perhaps a few weeks before. I'm allowing some time for David to get down from Mahanaim and across the Jordan to Gilgal. But I don't think much more than a couple of months at the longest outset. This is a fairly rapid uh, course of events. And the way that the narrator uses his verbs here in chapter 20, pursue, 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 he's talking about rapid fire sequence. So I think it's fairly short time. But it's nothing that I can be dogmatic about. All right, now we're on to chapter 21. Virtually all modern commentators have recognized the structural symmetry of the last four chapters of 2 Samuel. The parallel, even chiastic literary pattern virtually leaps out at you. 
So the question about the Samuel narrator's closure to his literary masterpiece is not about structure or macrostructure. The question has to do with meaning. What is the point of this material? Most liberal scholars label these chapters an appendix. Most of them believe on the basis of no concrete evidence whatsoever, but of course liberals need no concrete evidence. They merely advance theories, impose them upon the text, and carry on their arrogance as if the subject was closed. Most liberals believe these chapters were not written by the same writer who had written the previous chapters of First and Second Samuel, or perhaps the committee of writers, for after all, many liberals believe the Bible was invented by dozens of disparate religious committees, each one grinding their own perspectival acts according to liberal higher critical canons. It's amazing what you see when you look at your, your face in the mirror. If you're a higher critic, you see higher critics in the mirror of the Bible. In fact, these chapters have been compiled from scribbles, say the liberals, scribbles of several different writers, writers who know almost nothing about the David narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 1 to 20. That's the theory. And so appendix here is like the appendix in your body, a useless add-on with no real apparent function in your physiology. Thus, on the liberal view, 2 Samuel 21 to 24 is a useless add-on and could just as easily be left out of the Bible without great loss. After all, we would not lose 2 Samuel 22 because it is an obvious duplication of Psalm 18. And according to the liberal, some clumsy copyist inserted it from the Psalter into the tail end of the story of David because he got his manuscripts mixed up. That's the reason we have two copies of it. Neat, huh? I mean, you have to get PhDs to invent theories like that. <clears throat> Which is one of the reasons you should be suspicious of Old Testament and New Testament uh, scholars with PhDs. You really should. Yeah, you really should. Of course, I reject this liberal rubbish. How many vaunted theories of liberal critics have been shot full of holes and laid on the ash heap of history? Too many to count, but like Joab, they just move on, on to the next so-called scientific theory of the origin of the passages in the Bible, and they invent a new modern idea about how the scriptures cannot be the word of God, but are the words of human committees claiming to be the word of God. Scientific study of the Bible is the equivalent of scientific study of global warming, pseudoscience, and refined claptrap at that. Or do you really think the climatologists are real scientists anymore? Do you really think that after that revelation of all those thousands of emails? <laughs> you can't be that stupid, huh? They think you're that stupid, but surely you realize that you've been had big time. And science, the great god of 21st century man. 
Science is shown to be a crock, at least in that case. Well, what then is an Orthodox Christian believer to make of these four chapters, 2 Samuel 21 to 24? If they are not an appendix, what are they? And how do they complete the author's story of David? Let us suppose that our author is bringing his entire story of David to its climax. To do this, he must remind his readers of the king who preceded King David, so as to once again place the two figures in contrast. So in chapter 21, verse 1, He brings David and Saul before us once more, even as he has done in 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 1. The story in 2 Samuel 21 relates an incident previously unknown to us, an incident in which Saul's murderously ruthless character is displayed once again. And David's submission to God's justice as required by God's law is displayed once again. Remembering that our narrator's unfolding of David's career is generally reflected in an upward spiral, especially in contrast to Saul, we are not surprised to find a reprise of that paradigm as we approach the climactic close of David's life. Chapter 21 reminds us that God answers and responds to David even at the end of his story. Notice verse 1. Just as in 1 Samuel 28, we are reminded that God did not answer or respond to Saul at the end of his story. 1 Samuel 28, verses 6 and 15. We turn to 2 Samuel 22 once again, and here we encounter David and Saul once more, as you will notice from the first verse. Our author brings together the major protagonists of his 55-chapter history for the last time juxtaposing David and Saul with a lengthy song arising from the heart of David. No such poetic song arises from the heart or the lips, let alone from the pen of Saul. And so our narrator records another stark contrast between the two monarchs. One sings to the Lord in praise, in thanks, with delight in his heart as he rests upon the rock of his salvation. The other leaves no record of praise, thanks, or delight in the Lord as the rock of his salvation. What an exclamation point to the storied careers of this king after God's own heart and this king whose heart was dead to God the Lord. After this wonderful peon of 50 verses, one of the longest psalms in all of Scripture, 
After this wonderful song of chapter 22, we arrive at 2 Samuel 23 and the valedictory testament, the last words of David. And Saul, Saul is nowhere in view. He has disappeared from the narrator's story, the narrator's record of David's last song, his last song to his Lord. Which brings us to 2 Samuel 24 and David without Saul once again. This time the guilt is not the forgotten first king of Israel, but now the guilt belongs to the man after God's own heart. And as if to remind us of the ongoing power of indwelling sin, David brings judgment upon his people because he sins against the Lord as he confesses. Even at the end of his story of David, our narrator reminds us of sin which besets even the royal son of Judah. David in 2 Samuel 24 appears to be like David in 2 Samuel 21. But we have come to the David of chapter 24, the sinful David of chapter 24, by way of the transition, by way of the poetic transition of chapters 22 and 23, 1 to 7. David will act in accordance with the nature, the new heart, the new soul of confession which has been graciously granted to him. David will repent as Saul never did in 2 Samuel 24, and David will build an altar. He will build an altar to the Lord where he will humbly bow in worship and sacrifice. He will plead his own desperate need of a mediator. David once more satisfies the justice of God in 2 Samuel 24, and the Lord stays the hand of the angel of death. But at the conclusion of 2 Samuel 24, David is alive in contrast to Saul at the conclusion of 1 Samuel 31. Saul is dead. Now, I think Joyce Baldwin is correct in her little, very fine commentary, though it's all too brief, in her little commentary on First and Second Samuel. She labels chapters 21 to 24 of Second Samuel an epilogue. I like that. Indeed, our narrator has left us an epilogue, an epilogue of the careers of David and Saul, but an epilogue which concludes with the sweet songs of David and his posture in worship, his posture in worship at the altar of the Lord. That is the last freeze frame you see of David at the end of Second Samuel. David before the Lord at the Lord's altar. Ah, perfect snapshot. 
And these materials in this epilogue, they all have narrative ripples. They all have narrative ripples in the story of Saul and David. Appendix, unrelated add-on, what have you been smoking? You're stoned out of your mind. You can't even read the text. For your so-called vaunted Ph.D. theory of the construction of 2 Samuel 21 and 24. How pitiful, how pitiful not to read the primary document accurately. Now, is the epilogue chronological? That is, does it follow... In time, the revolt of Shiva. We had a previous chronological question earlier. We raised the same question here about this whole section. Does it follow the revolt of Shiva in chapter 20? I don't think so. But as I say, I don't think so. I am not dogmatic about that. And I don't think so because I'm going to point to verse 7 of chapter 21. Verse 7 of chapter 21, for it seems to me that the sparing of Mephibosheth here presupposes 2 Samuel 9. He has been brought to David's table in Jerusalem in that ninth chapter. Thus, the incident in 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 14, fits between Mephibosheth's initial appearance before David in the ninth chapter and Mephibosheth's final appearance before David in chapter 19. Or so I surmise. Therefore, what these chapters together, what ties these chapters together, is not narrative chronology. What binds these chapters together is narrative and thematic symmetry. You will note the congruence between the two critical narratives in this epilogue. That is, the two narratives which detail crises in the days of David. A famine in chapter 21, a plague in chapter 24. Congruence. Both are manifestations of God's anger, 21-1 and 24-1. Both are resolved when God is, quote, moved by entreaty for the land, unquote, 21-14 and 24-25. The difference in contrast to the congruence is that Saul precipitated the one while David provoked the other. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, recounts Saul's bloody deed in slaying some Gabeonites. Saul, who should have killed Agag, but spares him, should have spared the Gabeonites, but kills them. Saul fails to exercise Harem, the ban of destruction on Amalekites violating the word of God. Saul fails to exercise Berit, the covenant of preservation on Gabeonites violating the word of God. Saul is, if nothing, consistent. The narrative ripple 
in the matter of the Gabeonites reaches all the way back. It reaches all the way back beyond Saul. It reaches nearly 400 years back to Joshua and the approach of the Gabeonites in Joshua chapter 9. They appeared before Joshua as he was subduing the Canaanites in moth-eaten clothes with dried-up moldy bread in their sacks. Claiming to be from a far-off country, they induced Joshua and the men of Israel to enter into a covenant with them at Gilgal. Slight irony there. To enter into a covenant of preservation to preserve their lives through the covenant at Gilgal. And so Joshua made a covenant with them, and he let them live. However, when the children of Israel subsequently learned that the Gibeonites had deceived them, they nevertheless honored the covenant they had made and did not expose them to the harem, the ban of destruction, which was to be imposed on the other inhabitants of Canaan. Nevertheless, in letting them live, Joshua made them servants, made them servants of the tabernacle of the Lord. The Gabeonites were to be hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation of Israel. It was that covenant, that solemn oath sworn before the Lord that the Gabeonites would not die. It was that oath, that covenant oath that Saul violated when he slew the Gabeonites. One older commentator makes the fascinating suggestion that this massacre may have happened coincident with the murder of the priests of Nob, whom Saul slew in 1 Samuel 22. Ah, do you see it? Nob, the city of the priests of the tabernacle of God, and the Gabeonites as servants to the tabernacle would certainly have been contiguous to Nob as well. It is possible that Second Samuel 21.1 refers to an event that occurred in the time of First Samuel 22. Quite possible. I like that even though he's 400 years old. God's own verdict on Saul, God's own verdict on Saul and his house is revealed in verse 1. The Lord himself labels Saul and his house a house of blood. And when David solicits an explanation from the Gabeonites in verse 3, the word kippur, or atonement, is used. This is a word which refers to blood atonement and reinforces God's indictment in verse 1. Blood for blood. Only blood will satisfy for the blood that has been spilled. The background here is from God's law through Moses in Numbers 35-33. Compare Deuteronomy 19-10. You shall not pollute the land in which you are, For blood pollutes the land and no expiation. The Hebrew word is once again kippur. No expiation, no atonement can be made for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. 
You may recall that when blood was shed, according to the Mosaic law, the avenger of blood was to pursue the one who shed the blood. And if it was blood guiltiness, the avenger of blood was to slay the one who shed blood, blood for blood. The only exception was one who shed blood unintentionally and fled to a city of refuge. Here in 2 Samuel 21, God himself is playing the role of the avenger of blood. The breach of the covenant with the Gabeonites was a breach of God's very own sacred covenant. God himself comes to requite life for life. And the life which will atone for the life of the Gabeonites, it must be the life of the Saulites, descendants of the man who shed the innocent blood. Please note, Saul had shed the blood of Gabeonite grandfathers and fathers to those who were seated in front of David. The Gabeonites required that the blood of sons and grandsons of Saul be shed in return. The law of retaliation is operative here, the lex talionis as it is called, the law of proportionate or equal punishment for equal crime. Blood pollutes the land, and no atonement, no expiation, no just reparation, no kippur can be made for that blood, save by the blood of him who shed it. Numbers 35, 33 again. The frame of reference for 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 9 is the Mosaic law of just retribution for the blood of innocent victims of homicide. Now, the Gabeonites in verse 4 do not demand silver or gold as a ransom or satisfaction for Saul's crime. Numbers 35, verse 31, specifically forbade this. You shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Nor do the Gabeonites seek to put any man to death in Israel which may mean that the exercise of the death penalty was not available to them as a group, that is, there was to be no vigilante action, or their remark may mean that they are not seeking the life of any Israelite person in general. In general. The fact that they show a slight deference here prompts David to state, I will do whatever you ask. The response of the Gibeonites suggests that Saul sought more than the death of a mere handful of Gibeonites. Verse 5 indicates that Saul's intent was genocide, the extermination of the entire Gibeonite clan. If this is so, it would also be consistent with Saul's attempt to exterminate all the priests of Nob. For as you know, in 1 Samuel 22, only one escaped that bloody pogrom, Abiathar, so some Gabeonites escaped Saul's attempted genocide, as their presence here indicates. Other commentators focus on the Gabeonite demand for seven souls, in reparation for Saul's crime, 
And these commentators argue that on the Lex Talionis, Saul killed only seven Gabeonites. While this is possible, seven Saulites for seven Gabeonites, it is also possible that the number seven is the number of completion. That is, seven Saulites will make a full and complete retribution, a full and complete satisfaction for the Gabeonites slain by Saul. Please understand, this is not a blood feud. This is not a blood feud, as with Joab and Abishai with Abner. This is a petition for redress of injustice. A petition for redress of injustice by the law of proportionate punishment. Blood for blood, life for life. And verse 6. Verse 6 specifies the manner of death sought by the Gabeonites. And yet the translation of the Hebrew word here is very difficult, extremely difficult. Did the Gabeonites wish to hang them, to crucify them, to impale them? We cannot be sure. But whatever the precise means of execution, the victims were to be exposed to public gaze. This is certain from the story of Rizpah, which follows. David agrees to hand over seven men from the house of Saul, verse 6 and verse 8. While he spares Mephibosheth for the sake of his covenant oath to Jonathan, more narrative ripples in this epilogue, more narrative evidence that our author has not created a hodgepodge appendix to stick on the end of his narrative. Is there not a tinge of irony here? Is there not a tinge of irony here as David honors a covenant oath in the context of a narrative in which a covenant oath was basely dishonored? Our narrator has this uncanny way of tying up loose ends, even as the ripples of his story ebb out to their conclusion. He is a genius. He is a pure genius. The victims are selected by the king. Two are named. They are brothers, sons of Saul and his concubine, Rizpah. More narrative ripples. We have met Rizpah before in 2 Samuel 3. Our narrator places the spotlight once more on Rizpah, and in that floodlight highlights her character. The Mephibosheth here in verse 8 is obviously not the Mephibosheth of verse 7, the one the son of Saul, the other the son of Jonathan. But the son of Rizpah may be named for the son of Jonathan or vice versa. The other five victims are the sons of Michael, or is it Merav? 
We have a textual issue here. The Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible reads Michael. But the Septuagint and several other Hebrew manuscripts read Merav. One ingenious commentator has suggested Michael brought them up whom Merav brought forth. Michael brought them up whom Merav brought forth. That certainly accounts for the two names in the manuscript tradition. Neat. And very intriguing. I'm again fascinated by it. But the rub here, the rub here is that we know Michael was barren. Second Samuel 6.23, she had no child to the day of her death. Nor was Michael married to Adriel. She was married to Paltiel. Second Samuel 3. 15, or Palti, as he's called elsewhere. Paltiel, whom she abandoned when Abner returned her to David. David, whom she had herself abandoned when Saul gave her to Paltiel. 1 Samuel 25:44. Thus it is better to accept the marginal reading Merav here rather than the Masoretic text reading Michael. Nor should we confuse Barzillai here with Barzillai in chapter 19. This one is a Maholothite. The latter in 19 is a Gileadite. And so, the Mephibosheth here is not the Mephibosheth we have met. Instead, he is a different Mephibosheth. The Barzillai here is not the Barzillai we have met. Instead, he is a different Barzillai. The Michael here is not Michael. Instead, she is Merov. You get my scheme. It's the instead. All right. And now Rizpah. Remarkable, heroic Rizpah. Our narrator reprises a narrative about Rizpah here in chapter 21, which mirrors her character in chapter 3. Loyal. Fiercely loyal. Single-heartedly devoted, Rizpah, concubine wife of Saul, is caught in the crosshairs of the treachery of the house of Saul. And that not once, not once, but twice. The renegade son of Saul, Ishbosheth, accuses her of sexual license and infidelity. Abner comes to her defense denying any immorality, and Rizpah remains silent. Now her sons are victims of the immorality of their renegade father, Saul, and Rizpah remains silent. But does she act? She springs into action with the fury of a grieving mother for her lost children. Not just the garb of mourning, sackcloth, but a vigil. A vigil in which she makes of her sackcloth a tent, a pitched canopy, not only to cover her head, her body, her whole person with mourning and lamentation, but a tent to cover her head from the sun, 
the sun which breaks out afresh at the beginning of barley harvest by our calendar in April. Rizpah sets up her tent of mourning in sackcloth and stands watch. She stands guard over the exposed bodies of her two dead sons, stands guard from the beginning of barley harvest until the rains come. Stands guard against the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Stands to drive off the carrion eaters of the sky and ground. To drive them away from the bodies, the decomposing bodies of her two children, night and day. Night and day. 24-7 she watches. Night and day she defends her son's corpses from defilement by bird and beast. Rizpah watches. Rizpah acts. Rizpah mourns in silence. Rizpah's character is displayed loyal, fiercely loyal, single-heartedly devoted. Rizpah you see, is a full-bodied character whose devotion in chapter 21 is a mirror reflection of her devotion in chapter 3. Rizpah, faithful to her sons, even in death. Rizpah, faithful to Saul, even in death. Yes, Abner was innocent. And David, David is moved. David is wonderfully moved by Rizpah. David honors Rizpah as he honors the remains of her sons and the five grandsons of Saul. Honors them by decently interring their remains in the family plot at Zella near Gabeah, verse 14. David implicitly defends Rizpah's loyalty and fidelity, her maternal devotion, her marital devotion. David defends Rizpah with a royal funeral procession, a regal funeral procession in which all the Saulites, Jonathan, Saul, Armani, Mephibosheth of Rizpah and the five sons of Mirav, all these Saulites are buried with royal attendants in the country of their tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And there Saul was laid next to his father Kish, and Jonathan was laid next to his father Saul. And there in the city of Kish, our narrator brings us full circle, full circle in the story of Saul. Saul, yet another tragic figure in our narrator's story of David. Saul has come home to the place where his story began. Saul has come home to the place 
where his story as the son of Kish began in 1 Samuel 7. Atonement made, satisfaction rendered, justice served. The narrator closes the book on the house of Saul. God closes the book on the house of Saul, and God was moved by entreaty for the land, verse 14. And the rains, the rains that fell upon Rizpah, the rains that fell upon the corpses of her dead sons, the rains that fell also fell upon a dry and famine-stricken land. The rains fell, and three years of drought came to a close. Closure in the narrative of Saul and David. We have arrived at the list of David's warriors, an honor roll of David's fighting men. One well-known to us already, Abishai of the sons of Zeruiah, already well-known to us as a man quick, quick to use his sword in defense of his king and his king's honor. The other three are known to us only from this chapter and its parallel in First Chronicles 20, verses 4 to 8. We begin with the literary patterns which our narrator has embedded in this unit, verses 15 to 22. Notice the inclusio which envelops the section. Verse 15, David and his servants. Verse 22, David and his servants. Next, you observe the light motif, the key motif in the fourfold war again phrase and the Philistines being the antagonists. Notice that combination, verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. The fourfold repetition of the antagonistic Philistines making war again and again and again and again corresponds with the stories of the four mighty men of David in resisting the Philistine incursion. The four individual Philistine antagonists are all giants, giant descendants of the giant whose name may be given in the Hebrew of verse 16 as Rapha. See the margin of some of your English translations. The first of these sons of a giant brandishes a new weapon. Most translations insert the word sword in italics, but when you see italics in an English translation, you know it's not in the original. But the Hebrew does not have the word sword there. It merely indicates something new, perhaps a significant new revolutionary weapon added to an already formidable Philistine giant arsenal. The fourth of these sons of a giant also displays something new, something new and unexpected. He is a polydactyl with twice 12 digits on fingers and toes, another formidable Philistine giant. Polydactyl means many digits or many fingers and toes. 
The stories about giant number one and giant number four are longer narratives than the accounts of giants number two and number three. The opening and closing scenes in this giant warfare are more detailed than the scenes they enclose. Verses 16 and 17 and verses 20 and 21 are longer narrative sections than verses 18 and 19. That central abbreviated narrative section is also symmetrical, not only in form. Notice the phrases, war again, Philistine giant appears, David's warrior killed the giant. But you will also notice a symmetry of location. The city of Gov, which is identified with Gezer from the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 4. The city of Gov is symmetrically parallel in verses 18 and 19. Finally, we note that the first and the fourth giants are dispatched or killed by relatives of David. In fact, nephews of David. Abishai, verse 17 is the son of Zeruiah, David's sister. Jonathan, verse 21, is the son of Shimei, David's brother. Thus, both Abishai and Jonathan called David Uncle Dave. One <clears throat> on another intriguing note, Shimei, the father of Jonathan here, is also the father of Jonadab. Yes, the very same Jonadab that played the key role in the rape of Tamar by Amnon. More narrative ripples. <clears throat> One son a hero, the other a scoundrel. One Davidide warrior hero with an untainted war record, Jonathan, to stand over another David-eyed warrior hero whose record is tainted with the blood of Abner and Amasa. Mm. Mm. Narrative ripples indeed. As we have reflected on the chronology of these incidents in chapter 21, it would be appropriate to consider just where these four conflict stories fit into the rippling narrative of David's career. Our clue is the oft-repeated name here, Philistines. David's encounter with the Philistines are reviewed in 2 Samuel 5, 17 to 25, and 2 Samuel 8, verse 1. We do not ignore the Goliath incident in 1 Samuel 17, <clears throat> But the formation of David's band of mighty men, and the four named here belong to that intrepid company, the formation of David's mighty men is subsequent to his encounter with the giant from Gath in 1 Samuel 17. Hence, it seems to me that our narrative is providing some flashback details of the campaigns against the Philistines of 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 8. The one fact that may give us pause is the word weary in verse 15. If it refers to David's fatigue after the revolts of Absalom and Sheba, then perhaps these events are chronologically subsequent 
to events in chapters 18, 19, and 20, perhaps. There is yet one other notable narrative ripple in this unit, and it connects the third and fourth giants of verses 19 and 20. You will note that the last giant confrontation occurs at Gath in verse 20. And who was from Gath? Goliath, note verse 19, which brings us to the much-debated 19th verse. The Hebrew text here reads, as many of your English translations read, Al-Hanan killed Goliath. Now, we know that Goliath, if this is not a family name or an honorific name, we know that Goliath was slain by David. To further complicate the matter, the parallel to 2 Samuel 21.19 is 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. There we read that Al-Hanan killed Lamai the brother of Goliath. Now, if Scripture interprets Scripture, we may read 2 Samuel 21, 19, as Elhanan killed the brother of Goliath, parallel to 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. The difficulty is simply resolved, and the alleged contradiction disappears quite easily. Notice as well that the giant slain here in 2 Samuel 21.19 is killed at Gav, or Gezer. And where was Goliath of 1 Samuel 17 slain? He was killed in the valley of Elah, not Gav, or Gezer, miles north. Or I should say miles south, actually, because the valley of Elah is south of Gezer. Not only does the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 25 argue a person other than Goliath of 1 Samuel 17, our narrator here in 2 Samuel 21 describes a Goliath or brother of Goliath different from the one David slew by listing a different location for the death of his subject, Titan. Here at the end, then, of 2 Samuel 21, We are at the portal of two remarkable poems in which the real hero of the story displays his heart. His heart of devotion to the Lord, his heart of fidelity to the Lord, his heart brimming and overflowing with praise and thanksgiving for the Lord's work in his life. And the book ends to these two poems are the deeds of valor of David's mighty men. Our narrator centers the language of poetic exaltation to the Lord God of David's salvation with a framing device, a frame in which the instruments of the Lord God are featured, the instruments of the Lord who assisted David as the means to his bodily, political, and military deliverances. The upward spiral of our narrator's story of David climactically centers on psalms of gratitude to the Lord God of David's heart. And as we are drawn towards that focus, standing on the periphery as soldiers of valor and honor, 
are those whom God used to bring about the kingdom of David. Second Samuel closes on the upbeat note of bloody injustice made right through just retribution. Second Samuel closes with a David who does justice once more, even a David who honors the dead and the heroic mother and widow who mourns in devotion for her children. Second Samuel 21 ends with God moved. God moved by entreaty for the kingdom of David, a kingdom established and preserved by soldiers of might and valor, a kingdom extolled in thankful song and praise by the protological David. And so we have come to the end of chapter 21. Do you have any questions or comments or remarks that you would make to like might like to make on this chapter or any other reflections? Then we return to Hebrew poetry next week. Chapter twenty two and Lord willing, perhaps chapter twenty three, verses one to seven.